0: All right, so if you had to summarize the book of Ruth in one sentence, because this is the last chapter we're going to do. It's the last chapter in the book. If you had to summarize the book in one sentence, what what would you say? Redemption, Redemption, okay? It is definitely about redemption. The story is about God's plan. We sure see God's purpose in, in every little detail of it, for sure. God's providence. Anybody else? God will provide, and he certainly does, all through this book, all through this book. So we began with hardship and trial and tragedy. Naomi's husband and her sons died as they were living in Moab, remember? She returns to Bethlehem with Ruth. The other daughter-in-law went back home, and Ruth comes to Bethlehem with Naomi, and at that end of that first chapter... What characterized Naomi's heart? Bitterness, bitterness. Even she says, "Don't call me Naomi," which means pleasant or gentle. She said, "Call me Mara," which means bitterness. And she even tells us why she believed. At the end of chapter one, God had testified against her. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost two of her, her only two sons. And so she said, "God has testified against her." She claimed that she went away full. But she's come back empty and through the events that have happened between then and Ruth chapter 4, we see Ruth is what kind of woman? Faithful, compassionate. She's described as worthy several times in the book. She is honorable. Um, And what does she do that's so honorable? She does several things, but what what are some things? She provides for her mother-in-law. How does she do that? Yeah, she chose to go out and glean the fields and and to basically just pick up the scraps, which was allowed in Israel, and it was by law, they had to leave the edges of the field, and they had to leave the things dropped for those who would be poor, widowed, foreigners, those kind of things. And so she went out, and she worked. She was a worker to provide. She chose to go out into the field to glean, and we saw God's providential hand. You know what I'm, when, I'm, when I say providence? you know what I'm talking about? God working not necessarily miraculously, but behind the scenes, in all the everyday events of life, God is moving and working toward His purpose. God was providentially working uh, through all of uh, of the work that Ruth did and all the circumstances Ruth and Naomi were in. Uh, she just happened, it said, to come into the field of Boaz. Boaz, this man, happened to be one of the kinsman redeemers for their family. We will talk more about what a kinsman redeemer is in just a minute, but we talked about it a few chapters ago. We also find that Boaz is also a worthy man. He's also an honorable man. He's providing and protecting Ruth. He approaches her as a father would a daughter, uh, even calling her daughter, saying, listen, I'm going to provide for you extra grain. None of the people are going to touch you. Go and eat with the, follow my servants around and you'll have plenty to glean in the field. He, he kind of takes care of her. And the last chapter that we looked at, Ruth chapter three, Naomi hatched a plan to bring what she said is rest. Uh, I'm going to bring rest. I want to bring rest for Ruth and redemption to the family name. Somebody explain the plan. Ruth chapter three, what was the plan? I mean, just as succinctly as you can, you don't have to go verse by verse, but what did Naomi tell Ruth to do? Go see Boaz. To go see Boaz. When? In the night. In the night where? Threshing. The threshing floor. And what was she to do when she found him? <laughs> that's right. Uncover his feet and lay down and just wait for him to tell you what to do. And we we talked about the fact that that's a very, uh, it's a risky plan to say the least, but... Uh, It said at the beginning of chapter 3 that it was Naomi's uh, intent that it would help provide rest. Uh, She wanted Ruth to put off the garments of her widowhood and the mourning for her husband and to essentially marry or seek to be married to Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer for their family. And so what I want to do is as we begin chapter 4, we're going to find once again Boaz is pictured as a man who is faithful to his word. He is the kinsman redeemer. He is going to do what he said he would do. At the very end of chapter 3, when Ruth came to Boaz and asked him to spread his wings and cover her, to be the redeemer of her and her family, Boaz said that he would, and he said he would handle it in the morning. Uh, But there was one little hiccup, and you remember what it was? There was another Redeemer that was closer. We'll talk about what the laws for the Redeemer were in a minute. So he has to take care of this. So we see that he does. I mean, the very first section of chapter 4, we see that he goes immediately and he begins to take care of it. I'm going to read all of chapter 4 because you're going to need to see all the events that happen as we go back and talk about that. So if you want an explanation for something, I don't know if I have all the answers, but you can stop me anytime. So they'd just done the plan, he'd just agreed to be her redeemer if this other guy backed out and Naomi said to Ruth at the very end of chapter 3, you just wait, he's going to take care of it, he won't rest until, until it's done. Chapter 4 says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He's gathering the elders at the gate of the city. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, which was basically the court, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man says, I will redeem it. He agrees. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. In order, this is why... Kinsman redeemer, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, to keep the man who died's name going. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahalon. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what we're going to go with. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Ma- Mahalon, "...I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place." That's why he's doing this. That's what a kinsman redeemer is supposed to do. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate, the elders said, we're witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Lee, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which means servant. Uh, in, this text, in this context, it's probably guardian or provider. Uh, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon. Father Salmon, Salmon, Father Boaz, Boaz, Father Obed, Obed, Father Jesse, and Jesse, Father David. That is the final verse in uh, the book of Ruth. So we're going to go back and we're going to take these verses just a few at a time, and I want to just kind of show you the providential hand of God working, but also when I had the title on the screen, it said God's Redeemer. Who did you think I meant? There's like, well, yes, Jesus for sure. He's the ultimate Redeemer. There are two or three different Redeemers in this story. They all, the, the one who matters is, well, I'll tell you when we get there. I almost not spoil the surprise. All right, so the next day, Boaz goes to the city gate, and he goes there to settle the matter. The town gates were where village elders would gather to do business. Uh, that's where the matters of the city were settled. Disputes were mediated. Uh, where business was done. So it's kind of like the courthouse of the ancient world, I guess. And when he goes and sits down and prepares all this to, to get this business done, the text says, behold, here is the man Boaz was looking for. The redeemer of whom Boaz spoken came by. He says, behold. And the guy just happened to be there. This behold is almost like what we saw in chapter 2. And it said, behold. And Boaz came to the field. It's like, well, would you look at here? This guy just happened to be walking by. The guy that Boaz wanted to see and guy, the guy that Boaz needed to talk to in order to get this done, he just happened to be walking by. Once again, you just see God's hand working all these things out providentially to, to bring his will together. How all of these things come together. By now, the reader of the book of Ruth I mean, we see God's hand all over this, this situation, so it's really no surprise. What is surprising, though, is throughout this chapter, we're never given the man's name. And I think it's intentional. I'll tell you why in a minute. The ESV here calls him, Boaz calls him friend. Turn aside friend, sit down here. That's probably what it says in your NIV, New American Standard. That's a bad translation. The King James Version says, a certain one... The, the New English Translation... Where's Travis? Is he in here? Where's Travis at, Susan? Uh, he's on security. Travis reads the New, New English Translation. It says, it says, sit down, turn aside, John Doe. <laughs> ah, that's funny to me. I don't know why. The best way to translate this, these words, it's two words, actually, um, Uh, the best way to translate it is Mr. So-and-so. I know it sounds strange, but such-and-such, so-and-so, that's the best way that we... This same expression is used in 1 Samuel 21 and 2 Kings 6, where the narrator doesn't want to give the place name, so he calls it such-and-such a place. I will meet you at such-and-such a place. I think the author doesn't want to give the name of this man for a reason, and we're going to see why in a moment. But Boaz here does what he promised he would do. He is just as faithful and worthy as we've seen him be, not sinless, but faithful and worthy as we've seen him be through the whole book of Ruth. He gathers the elders of the city, prepares everybody to hear the case, and immediately we're reminded uh, in all this that he, Boaz is the redeemer that is faithful to his word. He's going to take care of this situation one way or another. So first he tells Mr. So-and-so he tells the other Redeemer what's going on. In verses 3 and 4, he said, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. If you hadn't been here for these lessons in Ruth, who is Elimelech? Naomi. Naomi's husband, the first guy that died while they were in Moab. So I thought I would tell you, Boaz saying to the Redeemer, I thought I would tell you and say, but in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, the the field, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. Well, isn't he sweet? Boaz presents the issue to the Redeemer, But in the first part of his presentation, he left something out, didn't he? Well, how did he leave out? Ruth, Ruth, yeah. I think, and this is just my opinion, I don't know this for sure, but I think Boaz is, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. We already know that. He wants to be the Redeemer. He wants to take care of this family. But he is very calculating in the way that he presents this to the other redeemer because he gets first shot at it. He's a closer kinsman. Everything in this whole scenario depends on what this other man decides to do. So if Boaz truly desires to marry Ruth, and I think he does, and he truly desires to redeem the family name, he's going to have to be strategic. He only presents the land at this point, and he presents it as... I mean, it's this lucrative investment opportunity, don't you think? For the redeemer, the guy, Mr. So-and-so, it's a golden opportunity. Naomi doesn't have any heirs. She did not have any sons. Both her sons died. Kilion and Malon are the two sons that died as well. So she has no heir whatsoever. So that means this field, if he buys the field and redeems the family name, it's really going to be his field. And it would increase his wealth. It would increase his holdings. Uh, to buy this land would add to his own son's inheritance because he'd pass it down to his own sons. Naomi has no sons. So it would, it would bring more wealth to him. It would bring an inheritance for his family's wealth. So it, it seems like, he didn't say much, but it seems like without a second thought, he said, sure, I'll redeem it, of course I will. Well, by presenting the land first... I think that we see, we're given a glimpse into Mr. So-and-so's heart and his motivation. Because in a minute, when he finds out roots attached to the deal, he's going to say, no, nope, never mind. To him, to this Redeemer, this is really just a smart business move. This is going to increase his wealth, increase the inheritance of his family, increase his name in Israel. In the next verses, we find out he didn't care about Naomi. He doesn't care about Ruth. He doesn't care about continuing Elimelech's line and his name in Israel. So he didn't care about any of that stuff. For him, this is just an opportunity to get some good land and not have any strings attached. And he learns this. He learns the true reality of his role as redeemer in the next section, in the next verses where Boaz reveals the rest of the story. He says, the day you buy the field, the guy's already said, okay, I'll redeem it. And the boy says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Notice, it's really not, it's not really sociably, sociably, sociably it's not really great that he's going to have to marry a Moabite anyway. But she's a widow of the dead. And this is why, Mr. Kinsman Redeemer, that you have to marry her, morally obligated to marry her if you redeem this property in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You see that? There's a cost to buying this land. He reveals, of course, Ruth is included in the deal. But to function as the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, according to the Levitical law, you're morally obligated to marry the widow and the firstborn son that you have with the widow continues the line of the deceased man, not your line. You with me? So the law of the kinsman redeemer. If you want to look it up, it's found in Leviticus 25. There's three things that a kinsman redeemer had to do, or was morally obligated to do. Uh, if an Israelite family became poor and had to sell their land to survive, the nearest male relative had the responsibility of rescuing them from poverty, buying back the land, restoring it to the family. Okay, so that was one thing. That was one part of what the they call it's called the redemption of property in Leviticus 25. The second thing a kinsman redeemer had to do, if the family became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery, uh, a rich relative could rescue them by buying their freedom. That was another way of redemption. The kinsman redeemer was morally obligated to do under the Levitical law. The third thing is what we're talking about here. And this one applies to this situation. If a man died leaving his widow without children, the nearest male relative would step in, marry the widow and have children and the firstborn son that he had with the widow would be the dead man's child, would inherit his property, would inherit his name and his na- he would keep the dead man's name going in the line of Israel. Y'all with me? Everybody with me? Questions about that? So, When Boaz says, okay, you're going to redeem this property, wonderful. But also know, Ruth the Moabite comes with this property and you have to marry her so that you will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. What he's saying is, you need to to recognize, Mr. So-and-so, that this comes with a cost. So when the Redeemer buys the land, he has to marry Ruth, and have children, and the firstborn child wouldn't have his name. It would have Elimelech's name, or Malon's name, whoever Ruth's dead husband was, which would be the line of Elimelech. And it would be the firstborn son of Elimelech, not this guy. And the firstborn son would inherit all of Elimelech's land, not your kids. You with me? So this redeemer, he's got his own kids, he's got his own family. He would have to spend his own money to buy this field, to redeem this field, that neither he nor his children would ever own. And he would also be gaining two new people he had to take care of, Ruth and Naomi. Y'all with me? Questions, comments? Yes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's another big negative. He would, yes, he would have more he would, he would have more than one spouse. Yes. The, besides, the that, besides the fact that, well, we talked about it in Genesis when that started, it was never God ordained. But also during the time of the judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So the Redeemer, the point is that this Redeemer yes, I will redeem the land when he thinks I'm going to keep the land. My sons are going to get to inherit the land. But when he realizes, no, I have to marry this Moabite widow and her firstborn son is going to get all the stuff and he's not even going to have my name. He's going to have the other guy's name and carry on his inheritance. He decides, nope, I'm out. He says, I I cannot redeem it. And here's why, lest I impair my own inheritance. What's he saying right there? Yeah, he's saying what will happen is the money, the property, the wealth that I have that I'm going to pass down to my sons is going to be being used to take care of Ruth and Naomi, and it's not going to be offset by any field that I buy because that field's going to this kid anyway. It's not going to be mine. He says, what you're asking me to do is just basically sacrifice all of, uh, not all, but a lot of my stuff and my wealth and my inheritance to my family in order to help them perpetuate their name in Israel. That's it. It's, it's, kind of a, it's not a good business deal anymore. And so the Redeemer, Mr. So and so, says, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he says, Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. This is, not a good, this is not a good business decision. But see, the duty of the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, and the purpose for the law, but the purpose for the obligation wasn't about business and finances and securing your name and securing your wealth. It was an act of mercy and kindness. You remember the loving kindness? Remember the Hebrew word we talked about over and over again? This is what the kinsman redeemer was supposed to do, an act of covenant loyalty, an act of loving kindness. Kesed is the name of the word. And we've seen it over and over again. And it would be costly. It would be a costly ministry that this guy would be doing for this family. It would be covenant loyalty and love, and it would cost him. He would have to sacrifice in order to... to bless this, uh, his kinsman in this way. Uh, and, and there wouldn't be any personal benefit in it for him. So in the end, he realizes this. It would do nothing to perpetuate his name in Israel or his line in Israel. So to protect his own holdings, his own inheritance, he declines. Now the irony about this is this redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, refuses to redeem Ruth in order to protect his future legacy his inheritance, you know, his, his own inheritance that he passed down to his family, his name in Israel, and by choosing to act for his own name and his own benefit without showing covenant loyalty, without showing loving kindness, he's left himself nameless in Israel. Not even given the dignity of having it recorded here that this scumbag turned it down. We don't even know his name. He's called Mr. So-and-so. If he were to have, presumably, this is all just guesswork. We, it didn't happen, so we don't know what it would have happened. But if, presumably, he would have sacrificially redeemed Ruth out of his own covenant faithfulness and covenant love to his family, sacrificed his whatever to redeem the land and redeem Ruth and perpetuate Naomi's husband's name in Israel. Then his name would have been incorporated in the line of David and the line of Jesus that we see at the end of this chapter. But he chose to live for himself. He chose to forsake the sacrificial ministry of mercy to his own kinsmen, loving one another as you love yourself, doing what was right in his own eyes, and now he's rendered nameless. Mr. So-and-so. John Doe. <laughs> uh, I bet it wasn't, too many, it wasn't too many Hebrew guys named John Doe back then, I'll imagine. Do we sometimes approach ministry, mercy, loving kindness like this? If there's nothing in it for me, if it harms me, I'm not going to do it. Can we give an example? I mean, you don't have to tell me when you've done that, but just how do we as people, as sinful people, do that? Okay, moving on. Yeah, it's, uh, can we all just agree that it's in our nature? Yeah, it's in our nature. So, what we see in Boaz, though, is, at least in in this interaction, the exact opposite. Now, I think he has, more, he, has more, you know, he has more skin in the game because he knows Ruth. He's met Ruth. Presumably, he's fallen in love with Ruth. You know, they, have, they have history together. But take note at what he does. Verse 7 says, Now this was the custom. You, know, you took off your sandal to do transactions. That was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders, elders and all the people, Your witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, "'Naomi's husband that died, and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon, "'which were the two sons of Naomi that died, Mahlon being Ruth's dead husband. "'Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, "'and this is why, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance.'" that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. What's Boaz's motivation? Is it, based on what he says here, is it financial? Is it self-centered? Is it, it's, it's, it's doing what's right. Based on everything we know about, but now I'm sure... I, by now i'm sure that he does truly love ruth so that's got to play into it a little bit but by now we we know boaz's character and at every step of the way from the moment that he first met her in as she was gleaning in the field to the moment that he woke up in the middle of the night with this young woman by his feet he's been nothing but honorable he's been nothing but what but Covenantly faithful to God's law and God's will and to take care of his family, which is Naomi is his family. And so he has been completely honorable throughout this whole book. So there's no reason to doubt anything that he says here. He has bought her to be his wife, uh, redeeming her to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. He's doing this to perpetuate the name of the, the men who died, Elimelech's family, in Israel. So that means the firstborn son of Boaz and Ruth won't be, he will inherit the land that Boaz is redeeming and that Boaz is buying. And so the people of the gate of the city hear this transaction, certify it, and they pronounce a blessing upon him. Look at this blessing. Where I'm at? Oh, I got plenty of time. Any questions, comments, crowds of outrage? Yes. Random questions of the best kind. That's a good question. The question was, did the firstborn son have to wait until Boaz died to get the land, to inherit the land? I wouldn't think so. I don't know that for sure. I don't know that for sure. If I, if I told you anything, I'd be guessing. So I don't know. I'm not sure. Huh? I don't know. She asked why they took off their sandal. It was the custom of the day. See, there you go. That's what, this is one of the one places in, not one of the one, but one of the few places in the Bible where it specifically said, this is the custom of how they did it. You know, so we don't, you know, like usually I have to say now, in the ancient Near East, we have to talk about this custom. but, But here it just tells us, this was the custom of how they did it. So the guy took off his shoe. That's how we, that's how we, do transactions. Don't be taking off your shoe when we do transactions today. It's kind of gross. So then the people at the gate, yes, sorry. Okay, wait a minute. Back here first, then you, then. How many uh reviewers were there? Well, it could have been more, but um, the only two in the only Boaz was the closest except for one. So it went by nearness of kin. So Presumably you'd say like like brother would be closer kin than uncle and so they would get first shot at it and that's the whole point of why Boaz had to bring the city because there may have been others behind Boaz but he there's only one guy in front of him that's closer kin. Yes. Is the law of the firstborn still in effect in this time like it was where gets Yes. So she asked about the, the the law of the firstborn getting a double portion, that kind of thing. And yes, that is true. It's still in effect, <clears throat> but only the... I think, and I could be wrong about this, so I may have to go back and check, but only the firstborn of the children of Boaz and Ruth, in this case would be the inheritor of Elimelech, and that the rest of their children would be Boaz's children. He is basically just being a redeemer to provide another heir to, for the line of Elimelech to continue. So like all the kids aren't kids of Elimelech, just Elimelech, just the firstborn, and so that firstborn would continue the line. So presumably, the firstborn would get the whole field. You know, he would get the whole inheritance of Elimelech, and the rest of the children would get Boaz's stuff. I th- I think that's correct. No, that's not correct. Oh, she. Has, let me get this one, man. Y'all asking questions. Not as good, huh? Go ahead. What happens if it had been a female, not a male? I don't know. <clears throat> huh? Anybody want? He asked, "What? What happens if it was a female firstborn and not a male?" Keep having kids. Yeah. Keep trying. Keep trying. <laughs> Huh? They had, they had six girls and no boys? That'd be rough. <laughs> Frank? Wait a minute, Barbara, go first. The question I'm just going to say, Boaz, I know he was honorable, but he was a wealthy man. Yes. And perhaps Mr. So-and-so was just getting by. So, Boaz, I mean, of course that was Beth's deal. hmm so you think his Mr. So and So's motives might not have been so nefarious? He just might have been not as wealthy. Right. It's very possible. We don't know. We don't know. That, uh, Mr. Uh, maybe so. Yeah. He knew the <clears throat> yeah. Okay. I, honestly, I hadn't thought about that. So huh? <laughs> so well, that was up to the writer of Ruth. So what Ms. Miss, what Miss Barbara said is it could be, and this is very possible, it could be that Mr. So-and-so's motives weren't as nefarious as I've been kind of picturing. He might have just been a man who was not as wealthy as Boaz was, and he was protecting the inheritance of his own children rather than sacrificing it. So in effect, he wouldn't be doing it out of, wouldn't be not redeeming the land out of... Um, Um, selfish motives or something like that just because he he might not have been as able as Boaz who was wealthy. Very possible. Huh? And he knew she would be redeemed. That's possible. Can't can't deny that yet, Frank? So that's why they gave the shoe. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I feel you. I'm with you. He, everybody, hear that? He said the thing about the shoe, about taking off the shoe. It could have been because, you know, like we got closets full of shoes, but back then, if you were poor, you probably didn't have no shoes, or maybe just sandals. But wealthy people had shoes, and it was a status. It was a status symbol, and that could be some of the background behind the. Given of the shoe or the handing of the shoe when you did transaction. I don't know. Yes. Go ahead, Dave. I may have missed something all the way, but do we even know that uh, Boaz had any other wives? Uh, the question is Did Boaz have other wives? I don't, I don't, I'm thinking, and I don't know that any are mentioned anywhere. I don't know that any are mentioned anywhere. I'm kind of running through. Really, the only genealogy of we have a genealogy with Boaz in it at the end of Ruth, which is kind of uh, which is copied at the beginning of Matthew, which is Jesus's line. But other than that, I don't think I could be wrong about that. But I don't think so. Yeah, for sure, for sure. If it was if Ruth was his only wife, very well, very possible. Good questions, all. Yes. Mm -mm. No, so that's one of the things, okay, um, Nate's question is, is there some cultural norm that we don't know about because he's really buying the land, but he's marrying the wife, the widow, so he kind of gets the land back, but the whole point of the kinsman redeemer is that land is going to be inherited by, it will be her firstborn son, but it won't be your firstborn son, see what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like if, if somebody else worked it or something, I I don't know. Is that what you mean? No, no, I just mean just because a simple act of marrying her now. When you paid her the funds before they got married, now they've kind of got Oh, because they're married, it's all their money. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see that. I see that. Yeah. I guess so. Uh, But eventually, eventually, eventually you're buying the land and until you have a son, it's y'all's land. But when you have that firstborn son, that inheritance goes to them. Okay, moving on. Anything else? (laughs) Go ahead. Wait, uh, Jamie first. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're talking about, he asked if there was an imagery from Boaz to Christ. And uh, there is. However, you can't, it's, it's called, what we're talking about is typology. So there are a lot of types of Christ. So Joseph is a type of Christ in the sense that he foreshadows Christ. He's not really, a, when I say type, I'm not saying he's, he's kind of Christ. He's, he's a foreshadow, a picture of of the true Redeemer that's going to come. And in this, in this instance, Boaz is a picture of the true Redeemer. But I think there's an even closer picture of the true Redeemer as we, we get further into the story. But yes, Boaz would be a type of, of Christ here. And so the way that he redeems is not perfectly in the same way that Jesus redeems, but it is a picture, a foreshadowing of the way that Jesus redeems. Any other questions? Man, that's some deep questions. We ought to take off every other week because when you come back, you ask a bunch of good questions. All right, so then all the people at the gate and the elders, they basically they witness witnessed this and they bless Boaz. They said, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Lee, who together built up the house of Israel, meaning y'all have lots of kids. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. He's talking about your name being renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they they express um, hope that, you know, Ruth would be fruitful and build up the house of Boaz as Rachel and Leah did for Jacob. They bless him, wishing that he's going to be great in Bethlehem. And they invoke the case of Perez, who was the son of Tamar and Judah. Do you remember that story? The story of Perez and his twin brother, who are the children of Tamar and Judah. Anybody want to summarize it real quick? Ginger? Uh, so Tamar's husband died. And she was promised that she brother to her and she had... That's correct. Everybody hear that? Y'all hear that? No? Okay, so if you don't know the story, I'm just going to repeat it real quick. Tamar. Well, husband died, father-in-law promised her another son, son son died, then another son, the son died, and instead of all his sons dying, he just held out and said, I'm not giving her no kids, and I'm not giving her none of my kids. So she dressed up as a temple prostitute, and she went and sat by somewhere in the mountain, and he came by, and he didn't recognize her. He ended up fathering a child with her, and when they found she was pregnant, they brought her out, he was going to kill her. And then, remember, he had his, his, her, she had his cord and his staff, and he realized he was the father, and very sordid, details. But why do they invoke the blessing of Perez, which is one of the sons, there were two sons, two twins that were born to Tamar. Uh, why do they invoke the blessing of Perez on Tamar? I mean, on, on Boaz and Ruth. There are a lot of dissimilarities in those two cases, but there are a couple of similarities as well. So I'm just going to tell you the answer because I ain't got time. There are several different theories and who knows. But what I think is most feasible is, number one, we find out in the genealogy that Boaz is a relative, a descendant of Perez. So they're blessing him by by his own ancestor. But also, of course, Perez became renowned in Israel, though his conception and his birth were, well, we'll just say sordid uh, and a little iffy. But that whole, that whole uh, episode with Tamar and all the, uh, the other brothers that she was supposed to get and didn't get, that was an example of someone failing to keep the Leverite marriage kinsman-redeemer vow. So he kept he kept pushing it off, not fulfilling the kinsman redeemer vow. God used it and God brought forth Perez who became very renowned in Judah, uh, in the tribe of Judah. But he is there announcing a blessing of the house of Perez who did become a thriving you know, uh, blessing to Judah even though this stemmed from a failure of the Leverite marriage where Boaz has not succeeded. But what's the word I'm looking for? been faithful in the kinsman, redeemer, Leverite marriage. Y'all with me? Is that confusing? Okay, I'm not going back through that again. (laughs) So anyway, main reason, Perez is Boaz's ancestor. So Perez was, they give him this blessing, and the elders turn this blessing on to Boaz, and it turns out that all of the blessing is almost prophetic. It all comes true. First, a son is given to Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth and he became, she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Ten years she stayed in Moab with her husband and wasn't able to bear a son. But here, presumably very soon, we're not told the time frame, but it says the Lord gave her conception. The Lord caused her to be with child. Um, and But then we read something really strange at the end of this book. Um, as this child is spoken about uh, that has been born in Bethlehem. in verse 14, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. Who are they talking about? Huh? He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who is the redeemer in this story? Huh? Boaz is the redeemer, but these women are saying, Blessed, you're blessed, Naomi. A redeemer has been born to you. Do you see? Follow the pronouns. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his, the Redeemer, name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than you than seven sons has given birth to him. A Redeemer has been born in Bethlehem. Anybody? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. They say to Naomi, not to Ruth, the Lord has left, not left you without a Redeemer. Naomi's redeemer is, yes, it is Boaz. Boaz has redeemed the family, redeemed the name, but he's not the only redeemer in this story. So, a redeemer has been born in Bethlehem. And so, the point of this redeemer is not that this this child is going to be named Obed. He's going to be the the father of, uh, of grandfather of David. Uh, He's not the Messiah. He's not. A savior in the sense that Jesus is, or anything like that. But what he has done, remember the hopelessness and despair of Naomi in chapter one? The grandson on Naomi's lap is a clear sign that the emptiness that she felt in chapter one has now been replaced by the fullness of God's blessing, the fullness of God's work. God brought Naomi through tragic circumstances from the beginning of this book to get her to the point of. This particular blessing. Way back in Moab, before they came back to Bethlehem, when her husband Elimelech died, she had two sons married to two women. She would have wanted more than anything else in the world just to live in Moab and have grandchildren there in Moab. She would have wanted... More than anything, just to have the family in Moab and, and all of that, but instead both sons died. And when we saw that, we were like, Man, how how much bad luck can you have? How much tragedy can you have all at once? It caused her, forced her to go back to Bethlehem broken, not understanding why God had made her go through all of this stuff. That's what she said. The Lord has testified against me. I went away full and I came back empty. She was bitter. But God had also given her in that time Ruth, Ruth, who she came to realize is more to her than seven sons. Ruth loved Naomi all the way through the grief and the loss and the pain and the bitterness. And God has given Naomi now not just a grandson, but one whose name is going to be honored in the line of David. The Redeemer in her lap was a gift to her from Ruth, for sure. It was a gift to her from Boaz, for sure, But more than that, it was the resolution of all of her bitterness and all of her pain and all of her tragedy. It was a gift from God to her. A redeemer that brought her out of the bitterness and the pain and the tragedy and the suffering and all of the things that she experienced. Y'all with me? Questions? Okay. So Boaz is not the only redeemer. Then the women said to Naomi, Oh, I already said that. There you go. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. I thought I already read that. I guess not. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. Hold on. Granny, I know you love the baby, but it's not your kid. No. Understand. This is is a story of... God bringing an outsider Moabite woman into his family, but it's also the story of him redeeming a broken and hurting and bitter and just suffering uh, person who's gone through trial. And they, the women of the neighborhood, named him Obed. Obed just means servant. Like I said earlier, in this, in this sense, it, it takes on the meaning of guardian or provider. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. So, here, what we see at the end of this book is the the restoration of Naomi. So, yeah, it's it's been all about Ruth and Boaz and this, this, you know, star-crossed lovers and all this kind of stuff. But what you see is the restoration of this bitter, suffering woman. Remember, her name was a byword. Don't call me Naomi, you call me Mara. Bitterness, suffering. But now the woman, the, the women named this child Obed. And it's here where we finally find out what this whole book has been about. It's not just God bringing two worthy people together so they fall in love and they get married. It's not just a romantic theory or a story of two people finding each other. Behind all the tragic events, all the suffering, all the plans and the decisions that the characters in this story make, God has worked all things for the fulfillment of His grand promise of redemption, all through this story. We now, are, we now see clearly God has been paving, his, paving the way for the king that his people need to get through this time of judges when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It's going to be at the end of this time that they appoint a king that God doesn't, doesn't ordain, but already God has planned for the king that they really need who is going to point forward to the true king who is going to come also a babe born in Bethlehem. None of these characters, not Ruth, not Boaz, not Naomi, not Mr. So-and-so, not anybody could see that in the moment of their decision-making, in the moment of their suffering, in the moment of their tragedy, in the moment of their hard decisions, they couldn't see I don't think they couldn't see God's hand of providence working behind the scenes to bring forth his purpose of salvation. They didn't know. I don't think that they knew God's grand purpose behind all this. All they could do in each moment at each place was be faithful in the moment and trust God in whatever decision lay before them. And here at the end, we see God has indeed had a purpose in the whole thing. The book ends with a genealogy. It says, these are the generations of Perez. Why does he start with Perez? Boaz's ancestor. Perez father, y'all can read that. The last line says, Obed, Father Jesse, Jesse, Father David. He gives this genealogy. And here, here's where we find out that Boaz is a descendant of Perez, the son of Judah. So a redeemer from the tribe of Judah is born in Bethlehem. Okay. <laughs> yeah. God has done more than anyone in this story could have ever expected in the very the trials and the hardships and the decisions that had to be made and the things that were going. He's done more than anybody could expect that the point of the book is God saving and bringing a Moabite woman, an outcast, a Gentile, into the covenant people of God, into the lineage of the Messiah. This exact genealogy is reproduced in Matthew chapter 1. In Jesus' genealogy, it's part of it. So, to do all this, to work all of this together so that God's salvation would go to the nations. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus come bringing salvation not to the Jew, not to the Jew only, but to the Jew and the Gentile. What happened in Bethlehem in the days when the judges ruled, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, was really, it was really insignificant in the grand scheme of the world. But it was huge in the purpose of God. When Ruth and Naomi underwent tragedy and suffering in Moab, they may not have thought, they they may have thought that God had forgotten them. Naomi certainly did. I don't know if Ruth did or not, but she may have thought God had forgotten them. But now we see at the end of this book, the very opposite of that is true. And it was through the normal decisions and circumstances of life, even the difficult and the hard ones, that these characters in this book and I call them characters this this is history, this really happened that these characters in this book through the normal decisions just choosing to be faithful in the decision that's in front of them in the next step, just be faithful, it's in that that God providentially worked one step at a time, they didn't know what the outcome would be, God worked through all this to bless Boaz, to bless Ruth, to bless Naomi to bring Obed into the world who would be the grandfather of David, the king that Israel needed, and ultimately bring forth the king of kings, his own son, Jesus the Messiah, to bring all of the Gentiles into covenant with God. And so ends the book of Ruth. Questions, comments? Yes. is <laughs> that well, it is spelled the same as our fish, but I don't think it, I think the guy is a guy. No, it's, uh, I don't know what the Hebrew word for salmon is, but it spelled salmon in English, so I just pronounce it salmon. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, there was one, oh. The one thing that did strike me, and I don't know if this is true or not, I'm just shooting off the top of my head. Somebody over there asked a question about the or somebody asked a question about the other sons of Ruth and Boaz and how the firstborn gets gets the inheritance, but the other sons, I'm not sure, and I don't know. I, this is just me thinking out loud. This could be completely wrong. I don't know that Obed is the firstborn son of Boaz and Ruth, because in this genealogy and in the genealogy of Matthew, he's listed as Boaz's, Boaz's son, not Elimelech's. The firstborn would be Elimelech's son. So that that's something to ponder. I may have to do a little study on that and see if that's true. I don't know if it is, but it really that that kind of piqued my fancy a little bit. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. God, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can Um, Well, we can come to the text of your scripture and you speak uh, profoundly, profoundly in it. And it is just as relevant today as it, it was when it was first penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to follow your word, to learn from your word, to feed on your word, and to hear your voice in it as we make our decisions day to day, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of not understanding why things are happening or what, uh, what the purpose or the goal of things are, but just being faithful in the next moment. That's all we can do. God, help us to be faithful to your word. We thank you. We thank you for your hand of providence working in all things. Uh, not only the big, huge, uh, sh- uh, the big, huge purposes of the world in bringing forth salvation and, and bringing forth the line of the Messiah, but also working in the intricate details of our lives, so much so that a man could just happen to be along at the right time at the city gate. A man could happen to be along in the field when he needed to be there for Ruth to meet him. God, we we thank you that you are a God who who, uh, just orchestrates the big and the small, even down to the intricate details of our own lives. Uh, You are a God who can be trusted. Help us to trust you, even when we don't understand why something's happening. God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.